When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to Pond on the Tyne, your go-to Newcastle United podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Coming up on this week's show... Black and white beaten black and blue by red and blue, but there's no need to panic. Carving our own path, why Newcastle can't just copy and paste the city roadmap. And football prodigy turned polymath, Paul Ferris joins us to talk about his new book. Yes, this is Pod on the Tyne. I am Taylor Payne and with me today, as always, uh, is the Newcastle United correspondent for The Athletic, Mr Chris Woff, and our senior writer, George Cogan. How the devil are we, lads? George, how are you doing? Yes, I'm very well, thank you, Taylor. It's a little bit tired from a long day going to Man City yesterday. I was um, I was in the weigh-in with my little brother, AJ, and we went, drove Chris down and drove down with Charlotte from True Faith as well. And the most sort of intriguing part of the day, I thought, the most interesting bit, the most revelatory part of the day, came as we were driving back through the suburbs of Newcastle-upon-Tyne, our fair city. And Chris, in a moment of self-reflection, points out of the window and says, that, that there, that's where Miniwoff grew up. And I'm thinking to myself, Miniwoff, is that, what is that, is he referring to? But Chris apparently refers to to his himself in the third person. That was the interesting part of it. But also Miniwoff. He calls himself Miniwoff. It could have been all sorts of things. I just thought that was interesting. And he said, yes, and that's where his that's where Daddy Woff now lives. It was like... Oh, my no, God. No, I said Papa Woff. It was Papa Woff. I think we're going to see Papa if CBeebies can commission a series, The Woffs, Papa Woff and Miniwoff, and a whole host of other Woffs knocking about. Yeah. God, Chris. Dreadful. I'm just glad that Miniwoff wasn't the nickname for your penis, Chris. Yeah. That would have been the who last thing it, we needed. Who said, who said it wasn't? <laughs> <laughs> How are you, Chris? Have you had a good weekend? It sounds like well, it. I mean, it, it seems like the 9th of May is the most edifying day in my career of several times because I've just had a reminder that four years ago to this day I was at Wembley to see Newcastle get beaten by Tottenham Hotspur and before the match, as I was doing a Facebook Live for uh, the Chronicle as I was at the time, I got covered by a sprinkler on the side of the pitch. So there is video evidence of me having to run away nice. from the sprinkler as I get soaked by the side of the pitch. So, yes, I am. I'm all right, thank you. I'm not too bad. How are you doing? Amazing. I'm okay. I'm in the middle of um, packing up to move house at the minute. So my life is literally upside down, uh, attempting to kind of fit my worldly goods into some cardboard boxes and move them across a couple of towns. So that's fun. As you can imagine, it's, uh, it's not stressful at all. Are you moved in with George? 
Yeah, me and George are uh, moving in together like some kind of horrific 70s sitcom. Because uh, <laughs> apparently, apparently, moving house is one of the two most stressful things you can do in your life. Fucking is if you live with said. me. <laughs> yeah, well, so it's moving house and the other one is supporting Newcastle United, apparently. Yeah, we haven't given ourselves much chance, have we, George? Let's be honest. Right then, it's been a, a bit of a funny weekend, hasn't it? Uh, but... If you want to, you can subscribe to The Athletic for just £1 a month for the first six months right now. Go to theathletic.com forward slash Newcastle pod and you get full access to all our great writing and ad-free versions of The Athletic's podcasts. That's theathletic.com forward slash Newcastle pod. Sign up now. Come on, you Maggie's. Right, lads, we're better to start uh, than a look back at that awful defeat uh, at Man City on Sunday at the Etihad. I thought, George, I don't know if you agree with me, but I thought City were lucky. thought we uh, we let them off lightly there. Yeah, I think so. It could have been a bit closer, couldn't it? It could have been about 8-3, maybe, on uh, yeah. chances. Yeah, it's it's weird, isn't it? It's like we watch the watch the Liverpool game and think, oh, there's no way. There's no way Liverpool aren't going to win everything after what it's so good, so dynamic. Oh, amazing. And then you watch Man City. Mm. You watch Man City yesterday and think, mm, there's no way anybody can beat them to the title. They're so good. It's, it's actually it's it's, just, it's like a strange thing. This is I know this is slightly slightly irrelevant as you know we talk about Newcastle, but normally there's so much jeopardy on these games. Normally it's Newcastle hanging on grimly for a nil-nil for as long as possible just to get that point that they desperately need. And because none of that's mattered, yeah, I've actually sort of enjoyed watching Liverpool a bit, and you know, and I've certainly enjoyed watching Man City a bit because although yeah, by the end it was it was heading towards humiliation. They're so good. Yeah. Imagine watching Kevin De Bruyne every week. Oh I mean, it's God. So good. But it almost it almost felt like they you know watching the game they, they were going on about the atmosphere in the ground before from what I could see about two thirds of the crowd were gone by the time the full time whistle went and this is a team chasing the Premier League title I mean God imagine if we'd had that kind of success at Newcastle and we were watching Kevin De Bruyne every week I mean I'm not trying to besmirch uh, the the good name of other teams fans and what have you but. I just felt like they weren't bothered. Really, it's like it's almost like we're used to this shit now. It happens every week, but uh, they, they absolutely ran us ragged, Chris, didn't they? Well, and I say this as a journalist who goes who goes across to cover them, so I know I'm in a, in a privileged position. And man, and Newcastle fans actually have to travel and pay to go there. But I've been now the Etihad five times, and the aggregate score I've seen is twenty-one-three to Manchester <laughs> City. Impressive. Um, I think we've got them just so, where we want them, though, haven't we, Chris? We can pull that back soon. Exactly. Yeah. So. It, this wasn't quite like some of the the other absolute hammerings have been. I mean, actually, most of the time when Newcastle have been the Etihad, they tend to have moments in the match where they've scored. Obviously, there was the Yedlin goal a few years ago. There was Murphy scoring. Dan Goslin. Dan Goslin. On this occasion, there was actually <laughs> for for for. I wasn't going to say, I was going to say large, but it wasn't large spells. But there was portions in the match where you thought Newcastle were competitive. Certainly could have scored. Chris Wood had a huge chance uh, oh, yeah. when it was nil nil. Second half, Callum Wilson had, I know there were 3-0 down that stage, but Callum Wilson had a huge chance as well. There were a couple of other moments as well where Newcastle could and probably should have scored. But equally, Man City, again, like Liverpool, you always got the impression that if they really needed to, they could have stepped it up one or two gears as well. And it, it's 
how admitted it after the match that the, the gap is huge. It's absolutely huge between Newcastle and those teams up there. And it's not just going to be... A, he was he was asked, well, after this defeat, does it sort of prove that you need to have revolution rather than evolution? And he said, he said, no, we can't have... We need to evolve because we can't just throw everything out at once and then bring it all together. But that evolution is going to take a good few years for Newcastle to even contemplate getting close to those two sides they've played over the last two weeks because they are just absolutely phenomenal both of them in different ways but they are just phenomenal they are we i mean george we tried early on didn't we to get to get at city a little bit and like chris uh, mentioned there there was the odd chance but let's be honest there was only ever going to be one winner on the day wasn't there and, and city were ruthless oh yeah yeah i mean just different stratosphere of team aren't they but yeah no i mean for the first quarter of an hour or so newcastle had more possession than city i think which is not you know not a uh... Not something you can say very often, and I think they did. They did have a few a few chances, but the thing is, you know, if if you're ever in a position where you're chasing a game against a team like that, they just know. They just know. They'll just get you. I mean, one of the things that I find most impressive about them is that, or to put that another way, one of the things that I found most sort of distressing about the match is that whenever Newcastle got the ball, they're just immediately put under pressure. So you see City on the ball and they're so good and they're so accurate and they're so talented that you can almost see where the passes are going to go two passes ahead yeah. and it just feels like it's it's inevitable it's going to happen and then Newcastle get the ball and they're immediately under the pressure and the players are immediately shitting themselves and don't know what to do and it's like oh my god how does that how can you be that good and you know Newcastle have been a team in form they've done they've done it brilliantly to get to where they are it's a miracle um but you just you just saw the difference in that and it's you know it's that it's that sort of accurate laser sharp passing uh compared to a team who still aren't massively comfortable on the ball yeah but yeah they they're just they're just deadly aren't they my youngest son watched the game with us this time and he's not really massively into football and he made a really insightful comment during the first half which was Daddy, why don't Newcastle just pass to the other players in black and white for a change? <laughs> and I thought, son, you've you've sussed this. You've got this clued up already. You're, you're a genius. Well, Chris, there was times, wasn't there, when Newcastle tried to get back in the game. They clawed their way into it. Um, there was chances. The Chris Wood chance... Um, it's a free header. It's six yards out. He needs to do better with that, doesn't he? And it's almost um, like those quotes from Alan St. Maximin in that interview during the week coming to life. He's talking about uh, he, he puts the ball in the box and there's, there isn't quality enough there to put it in the net. Um, but yeah, he should be putting that away, shouldn't he? He should. I mean, just picking up on the St. Maximin point, I think that that chance both... Well, we'll get into the quotes in a second, but both proved and disproved what he mentioned within those quotes. And that basically what he said... Uh, out, it was taken out of context, but what he said was that uh, if he was in a team with quality forwards, then he would get ten to fifteen assists a season. The wider quote he's basically talking about if he was if he was killing Mbappe and he's in the in the PSG team as a forward, he would get ten to fifteen goals. So it wasn't a direct dig at his teammates, but equally you can see why it was construed in that way. And Eddie Howe and him felt the need to address the squad about this before the match. But Sam Maximan's ball into Wood was brilliant; and he should have scored. But equally, Sam Maximan should have crossed the ball before that to Joe Linton who was completely unmarked previously yeah, and that. didn't and took an extra touch and didn't get the ball in the box which is the criticism that Callum Wilson basically mentioned early in the season when he spoke to, to Alan Shearer and, and that other forwards have mentioned about Alan St. Maximan is that he is he's frustrating in that sense but he is also Newcastle's main attacking outlet he's the one who makes things happen and he, he did create that opportunity he broke down the right and then he eventually did manage to get the ball in 
to to Chris Wood. Yes, he sh- he should definitely score. There's, there's, it's inexcusable that he doesn't score from there. It's the fact that if he got more power in it, it goes wide, it goes over the bar. I think it's actually more acceptable than just the sort of what he did, which was just flick it towards the goal. It was very weak, wasn't it? Yeah. There was no conviction in it. It looks like a striker who still remains short of confidence, would hope that the goals on at national duty, hope the goal at Southampton, hope the penalty against Wolves are going to give him that confidence. It just hasn't quite happened for a Newcastle shirt in front of goal in open play. Yeah, and George Allenson Maximum was busy in attacking that first half and he looked like he was trying to move the ball and take people on and get at the City defence, but he was pretty invisible when it came to going the other way and he didn't track Cancelo for that first goal. Um, the entire team, though, let's be honest, we're, we're, we're pretty off the game, but I'm not I'm not sure that 5-0 was entirely reflective of the game as a whole. Well, no, because Newcastle had chances, but that, so so did City and, you know, Dubravka, I mean, he made a mistake, but he also kept Newcastle in, in it, well, yeah. he didn't keep Newcastle in it because they, they weren't in it, but you know what I mean? I mean, he kept the scoreline down. Yeah. I mean, on St Maxima, it's, it's, it's such a tough one. I mean, he, did, he, he didn't track for that goal, as you say, and I think he'd done something very similar a couple of minutes earlier. So it, it leads us to that sort of question, can he play a structured, in a, you know, can he, can he play in a structured team when everybody is being asked to do a job and to work, or do you build the team around him, you know, and do you give him license? Is he the one that doesn't have those responsibilities? I don't know what the answer to, to that is. I really don't. I mean, whenever you talk about him, you, you have to go back to the whole, his whole time at the club. He's dug Newcastle out of so many um, bad situations. Him and Wilson have been so important to the team uh, since they've since they've arrived. But the strength under Eddie Howe, when Wilson's been injured for all of it, has been about getting everybody to improve. And I'm not sure that St Maximan has particularly improved. So what do you do with him? How do you give him a chance to shine? It was very interesting seeing someone like Jack Grealish, who wants time on the ball, wants to run with the ball, loves doing that. You can't give the ball away in Pep Guardiola's team because possession is is so important to them they just want to keep the ball and so he's in he's now he now knows that he has to be much more cute in possession whereas we just see St Maxima so often get the ball head down run up the pitch and give the ball away it's it's an yeah it's a really tough one it's a really tough one that it is, and they they came out in the second half, City, and they looked like a, a, a team possessed. Um, they were really dominant in that first five minutes, is especially Chris. Ninety nine percent possession to Newcastle's one percent possession. Uh, one hundred and six passes completed to zero passes for Newcastle in that first five minutes of the second half. I mean, I was just sat there going, "What? Are the, what are you supposed to do with this? It's like they're playing a different sport." Well, actually, I've analysed this for the Athletic, and it will be up by the time uh, this podcast is out because. I was obviously there at the game. I didn't see this statistic, but but our editor Alex, who was on, messaged me saying this, and I I refused to believe it. I said that that's that can't be. I've I've been and covered Newcastle for the last five six years. I've seen them not have the ball for such a long period and not be in a game at all. And I didn't believe that that was the case, and so I've gone and analysed it. And the thing is that Newcastle don't complete a pass for the first ten minutes and thirty seconds of the second half. So that That's is that crazy. is that that stat is accurate. But it's not that they don't touch the ball. It's the way the possession is recorded is basically you have to complete a pass. You have to complete an action. And so twenty four times Newcastle get a touch onto the ball during that period of time. It's interceptions. There's blocks. There's attempted passes which they don't complete. But basically there are, there are large spells where Man City do pass the ball around a lot. But it's not as if Newcastle are passive and are just letting them have the ball. They are actively trying to to get involved in Man City. And actually, during that time, Man City only have one shot 
which is blocked from Gundogan at the edge of the box, and that in a ten minute spell, so they have the ball for the entire time, and actually Newcastle, in a strange way, are managing the game. They're terrible on the ball, but then when they eventually get it, they complete a thirteen pass move, and and Bruno has a shot from like twenty five yards, which goes miles over. But it's sort of it, it, it was interesting because it does show Man City's dominance in one sense, but also compared to previous times when I've seen Newcastle not have the ball it didn't really feel as reflective of that and actually the statistics showed that since Newcastle have returned to the Premier League they had the most possession yesterday than they've ever had against Man City in a Premier League match since it's been promoted in 2017 it was only this they've actually had possession five fewer occasions this season than they did yesterday so that stat shows one thing but equally it doesn't necessarily show everything and it wasn't the period of time actually where Man City took the game from Newcastle you could argue that maybe it was the time where they weakened them and, and really made them tired. But actually, during that period of time, it isn't as embarrassing as a statistic as it seemed to be on the TV at the time. I remember in the first in the first couple of minutes, so I was in the way end, that uh, Newcastle had, had a spell on the ball and Newcastle fans were doing Olays. And I was like thinking to myself... Two minutes in. Uh, yeah, and I was thinking to myself, <laughs> mm, might have just gone a tiny bit too early on the Olays. Too early, but, yeah. <laughs> Slightly premature. Do, do, do you remember... When Newcastle lost 4-3 last year, having given Man City quite a good game, but actually I think they only had about 18% possession in that match. I think they had the least possession to score three goals in the game. But in that match, towards the end, Man City kept the ball for three minutes, and that was when I've never seen a team just get anywhere near the ball. That was passive. This was slightly different. It showed something different, but it wasn't quite the same. It was it was an interesting statistic, but I don't think it quite said everything. It was almost contained rather than just completely drop off and shit your pants, wasn't it? It was. It, they, they they just sort of sat in and thought, let's just let them have it for a bit, and we'll see if we can contain them. Well, I think, but it, I think what it also shows is that that what we said about when when your son said why didn't you just pass to someone else in black and white that's where Newcastle really need to improve and yeah, that's where they yeah. did struggle and it was it was Bruno Gimares who, who played the first pass which was an accurate one after that time which is what he was brought in to do but the amount of times there was a, I think there was a couple of goal kicks and a free kick in there where Dubravka's kicking it long but it goes to the opposition there was a few times where there's misplaced passes that's what they've got to improve that's the next stage in the evolution the survival has been built on what they've done off the ball and defensively but on the ball they've just got to be better yeah, and there has been a little bit of panic from some quarters, especially on social media. I mean, we get this after every loss, uh, uh, but really there's no need to panic. As the George, we need a bit of perspective here. When you look at where we've came from this season and, and where we are now, I think, you know, it, it is job done, but there needs to be a bit of perspective, surely. Yeah, well, I, again, I was there. I didn't get any sense of of that sort of attitude in the away end um, on mm. Sunday. Like I said, I was there with my brother. I explained last week he's he's over he's over from the states at the minute visiting his um, visiting his dad and not seen him for two and a half years. So I was just so chuffed to bits to be able to go to a Newcastle match with him. He's a big fan, but not been for a while. And he was like, you know, he watches a lot of American sport, and he sort of said that you know the idea that an American team could be losing a game as badly as Newcastle were losing and the supportive cheers of fans to increase in volume every time a goal goes in for the opposition or you know the opposition scores he says it's like this doesn't it doesn't make any sense but he was he was right every time that city scored Newcastle fans started singing EIEIEIO up the premier league we yeah. go as literally the opposite thing was happening um you know and <laughs> yeah. but there was that sort of I mean of course and that's you know that's the away end defiance i get that but there is still, I kind of came away with it, with this overwhelming sense that, all right, that was a bit shit in terms of the scoreline. And yes, towards the end, it got 
a bit, you know, that is that is an embarrassing scoreline. Fair enough, I completely accept that. But I had this overwhelming sensation that next time Newcastle play Man City, they'll be a little bit better. And, you know, you can almost guarantee, you can't guarantee it, but you know that they'll bring more play, players in in the summer and you're pretty sure that under Eddie Howe they're going to get better. And so that the next time, I mean, they might still lose 4-0 or 5-0 because City, let's face it, are truly exceptional. But I, that's the sense that I got, that, you know, next time we'll give you more of a game. And that's quite a... That's a that is a really powerful feeling to come away from that to come away from a five and a half hammering, but for the mood in the stadium to be as supportive as it was, it was great. It was great. I loved it. Makes such a difference, doesn't it, to get absolutely trounced like that, and then the overriding emotion not to be just blackness and well, well how are we ever going to get out of this shitty situation? Yeah, there's a bit of light. Yeah, that's exactly it. Because a few months ago. That defeat happens, and from minute one, people would have been chanting against Mike Ashley, possibly chanting against the manager, whoever that you know, whoever that whoever that was, and you would have had that crest falling. For, I mean, probably Newcastle wouldn't have been safe at this at this point, but you would have that you would have that feeling nagging away at you, even if they were safe. You'd have that feeling nagging away at you. Next season will be the year that we get got and we go yeah. down. You know, we we go down. Next season we go down, and so the the. You know, I know you. Perhaps you can't say that every single time you get beaten four or five nil, but I just got that. I I thought it was great, and my brother was blown away. He just loved it. George, your brother did also love some of the fruitier shouts that people were having and, and remarks that were in the away end, didn't he? As well, it wasn't just the sort of chance he enjoyed the sort of yeah. Oh no, he lo- he loved it. He was <laughs> and he you know he he knows it. I mean, so you know he he Peter Beardsley's his favourite player. I mean, say my little brother, he's he's a forty two year old grown grown man. But uh, but yeah, so he, I mean, he was joining in all the songs. But he said, yeah, there was there was this guy sitting next to me, guy stand, standing next to him. All he was doing was like looking at the city fans. We were quite close to the city fans, and he was <laughs> eyeballing this, them. This lad was like flicking the V's all the way through and, you know, using. But yeah, there was there was one phrase that this man kept shouting and it was the first word was glory. And the second name was a plural word, but it began with C. And so it was glory C word, which he just kept. Which he, yeah, it was a little bit like champions, um, but, but slightly shorter. Um, yeah. And he was just shouting that over and over again, which my brother quite enjoyed. Amazing, amazing. We do do swearing properly up here, let's be honest. Yeah. Uh, one of the positives, Chris, uh, to come out yesterday, it was absolutely brilliant to see Kieran Trippier and Callum Wilson back on the pitch for Newcastle. And uh, I thought Wilson coming back in lifted us a little bit and he had a good chance as well, didn't he? He did. I think that you immediately saw what he can bring in terms of, I think Newcastle just looked a little bit more dangerous through the middle. Uh, him coming on, he gave them something else to, to think about. And he had a ch- He should have scored. It was a really good ball from Murphy. And I think Wilson, who'd played a few times and was fully match fit, probably would have, yeah. would have taken that chance as well. Trippier came on and immediately you could see he was trying to push a bit higher at fullback. He was trying to bring things in that sense he did get done for pace for the last goal or the last goal either the last or second last goal but again that'll probably do with match fitness and the like and Newcastle were very stretched by that stage but just you could see Trippier was on the touchline just in front of where uh, the press box was warming up first half and he's he's encouraging he's providing leadership from the touchline we know he's done that throughout he's been in the in the dressing room he's travelled to away matches but to have them both on the pitch Newcastle have got out of the, of the trouble they're in without those two and that's been huge and that's what's been so impressive we've said before so to have those two back hopefully they may even be in contention to start against Arsenal next week that's huge but yeah Newcastle have lost 
Uh, Willick, to a knee injury, he's had a knee injury for a while, it's flared up a little bit again, so he is probably going to miss the last two matches. John Joe Shelby uh, has a groin problem, so he's going to he's going to miss uh, those matches as well. But what is interesting is that in the match day squad, well, I wasn't in the match day squad, but travelled with the team and trained with them, and who Howe says could feature by the end of the season is Jay Turner Cook, who's an 18 year old midfielder. Newcastle signed him from uh, Sunderland a couple of years ago. He's very highly rated, very technically. Uh, astute and he could be in the match day squad in the last couple of matches and could even feature a little bit so that's an exciting just glimpse of the, of the future of players who maybe are peeping through and trying to get a game Excellent, we'll keep an eye out for him uh, Anything to add, George, before we wrap this bit up? Well I was just going to say very briefly on Trippier there was this tiny little vignette after he'd come on so it was late into the game and I think what happened was that St Maxima was fouled, certainly went down and he stayed down And Oh yes, I remember this Trippier ran up to him and just pulled him up. And it sounds like such a tiny little thing, but there was actually an audible, there was a sound. I mean, I think maybe some of it came from City fans going, ooh, like that. And, you know, there was a sort of a bit of an intake of breath from Newcastle fans as well. And he, I don't think he, I don't think it was a sign of aggression at all. I'm not saying... But it was like one of those things of setting a standard again. It's like, right, no, we're still, you know, we're still playing... Let's get on with it. Let's get on with it. And to be fair to St. Maxima, he absolutely got up and got on with it. There was no, there was no, you know, there was, as I say, it wasn't, it wasn't an aggressive moment, but it was a tone setting moment. And that was so obvious from when Trippier came into the team originally. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm excited about seeing him and Wilson back. Wilson makes such a difference. And um, yeah, good to have that tempo setter again. Absolutely. Uh, Newcastle uh, have Arsenal at home on the Monday night football and a trip to Burnley left to play and you'd hope for a strong finish with the top half within touching distance. We'll be back in just a tick with former Newcastle player, physio, barrister and best-selling author Paul Ferris. We'll be back in just a moment. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. It's time to welcome a very special guest to the show. Paul Ferris was a bright talent, famously a contemporary of Gaza, and at one time the youngest ever representative of Newcastle's first team, before injury brought a premature end to his career. But that was just the start of a remarkable story. Having joined the club's staff as a physiotherapist, he trained to become a barrister, rejoined the club as chief medical officer, runs a health and fitness business, and has made his name as an author as well. His second very personal memoir, The Magic in the Tin, is out now. And it's a pleasure to have him here on Pod on the Tine. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Uh, but before we start, we have a little message for you from our friend Alan from work. 
Paul Ferris, he's genuine, he's honest, he's hardworking, and he has written two bloody good books now, The Boy on the Shed, and his recent one, The Magic and the Tin, I've read it already, it's a good read, it must have been so hard for him to be as honest as he has and what he's gone through. Um, He's gone through more than most in a lifetime, but he's had to do it in a few years and he's come through unscathed. And that sort of sums him up. And he's a bloody good friend of mine. And he deserves all the success he gets. Fantastic stuff. Paul, congratulations on the second book. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, Taylor. And, and hi, George, as well. And I'm just still reeling from the shock of the compliments from Alan Shearer. I spent 25 years trying to get one of those, but there you go. <laughs> You've got to make the most of them, haven't you? Yeah, you sure that was him? That wasn't George putting on a, putting on a bit of an accent. It was definitely Alan. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, you know, if you you know if you get a well done from Alan Shearer, it's like uh, it's like the biggest compliment, uh, um, the biggest compliment, don't you? Absolutely, that's fantastic. Thank you for that. Well, thank him as well. Not at all. Look, this is your second book, Paul. As as Alan mentioned, the first, the Boy on the Shed, was was sort of was magical. I mean, an absolutely beautiful piece of writing. But kind of a lot of it was recognisable in the sense that a lot of it covered your life and career in in football, which is underselling it, I know. But this is a very different proposition, and I'm reading it now, and um, I don't want to kind of give the give the game away, but it's incredibly intimate, isn't it? I mean, that's maybe the the word. Can you sort of tell our listeners what it's about, please? Yeah, I think George, you mentioned you mentioned the boy in the shed. I think that the magic in the tin kind of came about because, as you all probably both know, in publishing you, you write a manuscript, and I wrote the manuscript of the boy in the shed, but that's like 2016 when I finished it. But then I didn't get it actually published until 2018. So, so this book that I'm talking about in 2018, just after I'd written the manuscript in 2016, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer like a week after writing the manuscript, and before the boy in the shed was published, I've had my prostate removed hasn't quite worked. I've had sepsis and anemia. I'm back in hospital again, having radiotherapy and hormone treatment just before I'm going on television and radio to talk about this wonderful journey I've been on with a boy in the shed. And actually, I'm already on a whole other journey. And the whole other journey that I'm on is much worse than anything I could have thought of when I was writing when I was writing the boy in the shed. And actually, I, I sent a note to the publisher and said, look, there's a whole other chapter happening here. Do I need to just talk about it? Because I'm, I'm, living, I'm living a whole other thing with prostate cancer. And they just said, look, Let's not drop the reader off a cliff again because you're in the shed's quite quite a roller coaster. They said let's just finish where we are, which is which is fair enough. But actually, by far the journey I've been on with prostate cancer goes way beyond anything I've, I ever felt with a heart attack and the heart disease that they're talked about in 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 the boy in the shed. Because when you have a heart attack at my age, you kind of have your stent. And yes, I've got a condition and a genetic condition, but I can kind of run. And I can exercise and I can go out with my family and I'm the same person. I just had the heart attack and I can can kind of eventually get over it. Whereas the, the, the magic in the tin is essentially a journey of what it's like to be a young man and have your prostate removed and all that that means for you as a young man. And actually people will say, maybe you're not a young man, you're 56 years old. I was 51 years old and had my prostate removed. And when you're in the room with the doctor and he says, this is going to impact on your life if you don't get your prostate removed. He said, but if you do remove your prostate, you're going to have side effects and they're going to be that, 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 that. You don't hear the side effects. You just hear, if I don't get this thing removed, I'm going to have it, I'm going to have trouble here. But then, then once you have it removed and the side effects are right front and center and those side effects are, I don't want to put people off their, 
of their food, but those side effects for a young man are really difficult to live with mentally and physically. And you know, I'm living with, you know, I, I you know, I don't mind, you know, I don't, I don't have erections anymore. I don't produce semen anymore. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm I have been incontinent, incontinent at the moment. You know, I'm impotent. Penile shrinkage, <laughs> you have your prostate removed, you shrink your penis. What man wants? To, what, I think I said in the book, who the hell signs up for this? It's just like so. So I was feeling re, feeling really emotional about it and about about the place I find myself and quite bewildered. And and I wanted to try and write away the bewilderment and write away the pain and try and link it to the birth of my granddaughter and the success of the boy in the shed. And that's kind of what I've done in the book. So it's kind of it's kind of a confused man and and someone trying to find their way through. Being a different person. Yeah, I mean the confused man bit I have empathy uh, with, but I mean the rest of it. I mean, I say I'm reading it now, and I've, I mean you've you've used a lot of th- those phrases, but you know I've read a lot already about doctors with fat fingers, and you know, um, <laughs> but you write about you write about an important subject that manages to sort of be harrowing and emotional, but also funny at the same time. But you say right at the start of the book that it took all the courage you possess to put those words down. I mean, can you talk us through that a little bit? Because it isn't stuff that's talked about. It isn't stuff talked about a lot. And here you are doing it in a way that's, you know, it's like a legacy there. And it's, I mean, it's extraordinary stuff what you're writing about. Well, first of all, I didn't realise, I didn't realise this until I wrote The Boy in the Shed. I, I, I don't know how to write any other way than to write what I'm feeling and to write what I'm feeling. And I, I recognise that now. And I don't think, I think if I tried to write something that actually lacked that, I might, I might, there might be, there might be a problem with the writing then. So, so in my, in my case, um, the only thing, the most embarrassing thing I, 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 I was going to ever be embarrassed was almost for my, my three sons who are 30 years old, 25 years old, and one's coming 21 years old, and and, and maybe, maybe I was worried that what I was writing might open them up to, I don't know, open them up to some kind of criticism or it's just a stupid thing. And that, so I ended up reading. Reading some of the chapters, the more intimate chapters, I was reading to my to my middle son, who's who's the toughest audience, and I just read them as I was reading them, and I said, "Are you going to be embarrassed about that?" And he said, "That's your journey. That's your journey, Dad. That's what you're that's what you're living. So so I, so if you want to write it, if you want to write it, you write it." And then and then it's kind of for for Geraldine as well. Is 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 you know you don't want her to go into work and everybody. I think I think when I wrote the boy in the shed, George, Geraldine, Geraldine, my wife used to walk into work. And any teacher that she's a teacher, any teacher that had read the boy in the shed, they'd say to her in the morning, "Can I give you a hug?" <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then, and then, and then this one, then this one's coming along. She said, "You know, she's going in there. They're reading the book, and the, the hug's a bit tighter and a bit longer now." Because and, and and actually, and it's a genuine thing. Alan, Alan Shearer very kindly wrote the foreword to the second book, and the second last paragraph, which is no longer in the foreword, was, um, "I've always known Jerry deserved a medal to put up with him." Now, now I know she does. You know, now I've always believed she did. Now, and she actually said, "Paul, I really appreciate the sentiment what Alan's trying to say, but actually, can you take that out because actually it could be it could be misconstrued that actually I'm I'm bothered by you having prostate cancer or bothered by you." So, in answer to your question, yes, yes, it was tough to write. And actually, someone asked me the other day, was it cathartic to write? And I kind of hoped it would be. If I'm being really honest, it wasn't. It was quite sad to write in places, and the humour. I think the humour is almost that situation where if you if you, if you don't write it with the humour, then you, you know that you don't laugh, you'll cry. It's a bit. It's a bit. I actually tried to deliver some of the darker moments, and there are some dark moments in there for any any man to deal with. I tried to deliver them so that almost the readers reading it maybe has a laugh to themselves and think, oh, they're they for the grace of God. I, thank God it's not you know. Or, or the poor. So so I, 
I kind of use the humor to deliver the hammer blow sometimes. That, that's, I, don't know yeah. that's, I don't know whether that's good writing or bad writing. It's just my writing. Oh, it's extraordinary. This is the perspective, yeah. isn't it, Paul? It's uh, When I asked you how you're doing at the start, and obviously it's all very sort of jovial and nice, but in that sense, how actually are you doing at the minute? Are you are you well in yourself? Are you sort of mentally and physically okay? Are you are you are you coping with all of this, or is it is it still a daily battle? No, I'm I'm, I'm physically in a very good place. I'm not. I'm, I'm when I when I had my prostate removed, which I read about in the book, there was a bit of a, a bit of a, a bit of a a moment when actually it was a you know it was a disaster. Really, I had my prostate removed, thinking that's the end of it. And actually, within three months, my PSA is rising again, so there's cancer cells still there, and that's a blow. But actually, I had some radiotherapy and hormone treatment, which have actually essentially destroyed lots of the lots of the nerves. They tried to to save the penis, tried to, but but actually, what it's actually done is it's 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 seen me four years through having no rising PSA. So I'm in a very good place. I don't think I can ever say it's not coming back. But I think the doctor, the oncologist, is now happier with me than he's ever been in terms of you know there are lots of men who who are, who are in as good a position as me. The aspect, that's the physical aspect of it. What I tried to convey in the book, and what I'm still living through is I'm finding I find the mental side of it. I'm finding that I'm still finding that tough, and I'm still trying to find my way through that. And the book, the book's part of me trying to find my way through that because it makes people talk to me about it. And I'm, I would be, George. I, I don't know. We, we've I, I guess I've I've known you and known 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 of your writing and known you met you socially on one or two occasions. I guarantee we don't know each other very well because I'm I'm never been able to put myself forward for anything. I've always been the person who would stand in the. I used to call it shyness, but I think it's introversion. Whereas actually, once the book's written, then that has to go, and I have to talk. And I think talking is all out there. Yeah, talk is certainly good for me. Yeah, and I mean, well, I suppose on on that on that subject, I mean, you've done so many. I mean, you're one of those people who's had a life of many lives, and you know, sort of uh, very different things. But where did the writing part come from? And forgive me for being quite so brutal. Why the fuck are you so good at it? Because it doesn't seem very fair, if you ask me. <laughs> I've had to work a long time at this. Uh, <laughs> can, can you give George some tips? I don't think George needs any tips. It'll be a mutual admiration. <laughs> I, I think um, the, questions are, the questions that I, I really genuinely don't know, George, I, I genuinely don't know. I just It was an instinct. It was an instinct that I thought, I used to I used to stand at Newcastle United and I used to stand in the back of a it's uh, not just the writing I used to stand in the back of the room and there'd be coaches talking and different people talking and I'd be there as a physio and, and I'd kind of be there thinking I think I, I think I might be able to do that better than that genuinely I think I could talk about better than that or or, or 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 people would ask me to write things for them and then at work people would say why don't you would you just pull your good word you write that for me and then I'd start to do bits and pieces that way and and actually I, I actually came to academia quite late in my life as well so so I kind of I kind of I kind of even when you're doing the law stuff, legal writing is very different. But actually, I, 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 I found the ability to construct sentences sounds stupid, and and make them fit seems like a, quite an easy thing for me to, for me to do anyway. Whether anybody likes the reading, it's yeah. pleasing to me. And I didn't realize it was actually the people people think it's actually something you're good at. It just felt like like when I wrote the boy in the shed, I genuinely I thought no one would read it. I thought my family would read it. It would never get published. That's the truth. And then the thing that I've, the thing that gives me most pleasure are people like you saying. Never mind the book. The writing's really good. That's really that. that, oh, that Jesus. That, no, that that's the yeah. best. That's the best thing for me. And it's a bit like this book. Anyone who does buy the magic in the tin, yes, it's a story. It's it's it, it is it is it is the story of the prostate cancer. But I hope it's I hope it's an entertaining thing to read. Us just as <laughs> no, just, forgive just me for laughing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't know where it yeah. came from. 
Right, fair enough. Yeah, I mean, we have to, uh, Paul. We have to ask you about football as well. Um, do you ever think there might be a time uh, when it comes to Alan taking the Newcastle manager's job and you're there alongside him again in that sort of role? Do you think that is ever a possibility for you, uh, a, a, a role back in football again? No, if you talk about mental turmoil, there's a good, there's a good way to, to put yourself in mental turmoil. Wait for Alan Shearer to get a job as a manager in football. I think you're going to go with him. That would be a way to just waste 10 years of your life. Some of us might have done that already, but um, <laughs> um, no, I was actually in a I was actually in a restaurant in in Wylam with my wife the other night with my with my son. We were just sitting in a little. It's actually mentioned in the book, a little bistro in Wylam. I've been a few times, and I said to my son, "That table over there is where I sat with Alan when we sat with our wives and Alan, and and I, and I decided to jump off a legal career because Alan was going to go to Southampton, and I was sitting with him and Lania and my wife Geraldine, and we're sitting around having a few glasses of wine." And Lania, Lania turned to me and said, don't do it. And Alan said, as he would always say, what are you talking about? He's a big boy, he can do what he wants. And it's his decision. And I said, it's my decision. And it was my decision. And I made a decision to jump off a legal career for, for him because I had enormous belief in him. And actually, at that time, who wouldn't have thought Alan Shearer would be a manager? I was convinced he was going to be Southampton manager, Newcastle manager, England manager. But actually, the more I watch him now, and the more to see how, how good he's getting on the television, and he is, he, I think he's got considerably better. And, and like, he, he, I think he's, I think he's, he's, he's excellent. I don't see him ever, I don't see him ever going back. Where there was a time in my life when I thought that was all he was ever going to do. And if you ask me, you know, 15 years ago, which player is destined to be a manager in football, it would have been him. And I've since watched Scott Parker do it, and Lee Bowyer do it, and Jonathan Woodgate do it. I can remember, sorry, I've been talking to him, I remember. We, we beat Middlesbrough 3-1 when we went in for those eight weeks at the end of the season and we were in the bottom three the whole time. We beat Middlesbrough 3-1 at home on a really warm night at St. James's Park. And yeah, we went back to we went back before we went back to the house, we went in the coach's room and Gareth Southgate came in the coach's room and shook Alan's hand and said, This coaching thing's easy, Alan, isn't it? And I looked at him and I said to Alan, Poor Gareth, what's he gonna do with his career? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought Alan was gonna be I thought Alan was gonna be a great manager. That was Gareth on the, on the dustbin of, of history. But um so did, did, you just football's so unpredictable. I'm I'm kinda glad to be out of it to be honest, because George, you asked about the writing. The writing's part of the law stuff, it's part of everything, it's part of trying to strive to do something for yourself so you don't have to rely on anybody else and you just think actually yeah, what, yeah. Whatever, yeah, whatever, yeah. whatever whatever talent I have, I'll try and I'll try and put it out there and see if someone 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 likes it or, or, or and I can I can stand on my own two feet. Because you were you were brought in at that point. You were doing sort of an audit of the whole club, weren't, weren't yeah. you? That was your that was your role. But can you tell us a little bit about that, and then also about that summer when you were waiting for the infamous call from Mike Ashley that never. Yeah, well, I, well, I was always going to. I was because I jumped off the legal career. It was for it was for the Southampton job, but that never it never materialised. And and then we were then then we we're just waiting for a job. And Alan got off with Alan got off with that eight weeks at the end of the season. I can remember talking to him on the phone, and and he said, look. I might bring you in at the end of the season because this is just an eight-week stint thing to do whatever it is. And honestly, I was run out of money so rapidly that I gave us what I said. I think you might think they'd bring me in a bit earlier than that because otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, otherwise I'll, be, I'll be in a tent. And he said, all right. Well, let, well, he said, well, why don't you do come in and just, you know, head up, head, well, you have, you know, we don't even know what your title is. Just come in, oversee the medical side, which I was going to do long-term anyway, uh, and just have a look and see, see, see if we can sort out that said, you know, just have a little look and see if there's anything we can fix or make better for for the summer when we get the job properly. That was that was so basically I was there as kind of the third man of me, Ian Dowie and 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 um Alan. No one kind of knew you were there apart from the staff, obviously. And 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 you and you just you just you're just looking at the injuries, you're looking at the you know, we were there for 
eight weeks, and there were I think there were six senior players on maybe at that time might have been sixty grand plus Michael Owen who was on double that. Um, but but there was six of them who were injured at the time. I think it was something like Jeremy, Joey Barton, Alan Smith, um, Mark Baduka, and maybe Colacini. I think it was at, at some point in the or other. I remember saying to Alan, you, you, you going forward, you definitely can't sustain carrying that kind of carrying that kind of burden. So if you can if you can reduce that, we'll do that. So I went through the whole bit, did it all, got into the summer, and you mentioned about the summer, and we sat down with Mike Ashley two days after the the season finished, and. All parties there. Um, there was a guy called Keith Harris there. Um, he was he, Mike Bashy shocked us by just saying, "I want to sell the football club." Alan very quickly said in a very blunt manner, "Well, I, I don't care whether you own it or not. I want to be the manager." And he said, "That's great. That makes it that makes it easier for us to sell, doesn't it, Keith?" And this Keith chap was saying, "Well, yes, that makes it much easier to sell." Alan then went into a meeting with Mike on his own, and I think had a very frank conversation as Alan's prone to doing, which is his... That's what I admire about him. And, 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 yeah. and he came out afterwards and told me some of the things he'd, he'd said. And I said, well, maybe I might have been a bit more circumspect, you know, just uncertain. But, he, but, you know, fair play to him. He just said, I don't think the people running the club are the right people. I think we need to get someone who understands football to run the football club. And we did. And we agreed. We agreed in principle with Alan's agent was there and agreed in principle what salaries we might want, what budget we might want, um, what my title would be. I, I mean, I had a ridiculous conversation with Alan saying, well, what's your title? And I said, well, it's probably just head of the medical department or 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 um, performance. He said, well, it's definitely not from a director because I don't want people to think you're more important than me, Jay. <laughs> so, so we ended up with something like, we ended up calling it something like head of performance for the negotiation point. That was on a Tuesday. Came in and they were all way off to say, yes, that all sounds great. All shook hands, all very happy. Uh, and... Derek Lambias came in on the Thursday, came in of Alan's office and was, you know, very a bit nervous in the room almost and just said, oh, we're having some trouble with the bank here. We need to get our, our we can't get our overdraft sorted and I'll report back to you. And I went off, I went off on the Friday to Edinburgh with my family and on the Saturday morning I picked up the, I think it was the Sunday Times or something and I picked up the back page and it said something like, Greedy Shearer is asking for too much. And on the top line said, Alan Shearer is asking for X amount a year of his salary and his Head of performance, Paul Ferris, is asking for this with the exact amount and the exact title that we just made up two days before. So I rang Alan and said, you're not getting the job. Then he, he said, what do you mean? I said, someone just leaked everything we've just said in the Sunday paper. And then, as you probably remember, there was this, there was this charade that was played out for the whole summer. We're trying to get Alan in. We're trying to get Alan in. There was never any intention of it. I mean, never any intention. Of it. And I think from my point of view, it was disastrous for me because I was forced to sell my home and did things that that, that, but that was my... I was my decision that to do it, but actually, it was a pretty poor way to treat someone like him. I felt that that, that they're just even just you know he's a pretty straight lad. Just phone him up and say you're not getting it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And in terms of your career, sort of being entwined with Alan, there was the other brilliant story from earlier, when of course he was um, he was uh, it was him in one corner and Rude Hullet in the other corner, and you wrote I mean you wrote this. In in uh, you know in the in, in the first book about sweeping the physio room for for bugs. Yeah. So can you can you tell us that? can you tell us that story, please? You know, it's it's a it's a, a for some reason and I still can't quite work it out. And I think Alan and Rude might be friends now. For some reason, Rude came, when Rude came in and I was a physio and as a physio and Derek Wright's there who you know very well is the most honest man you'd ever meet. And I prided myself on both of us on being we never got involved in any of the football side. We were just there to be medical people and do the best job we could, and that's how you should be. It's not my not my job to tell 
a coach who the best players. I was just there to look out. I was a medical professional working in football. Root came in, and within two or three weeks, you got people like Alan coming in or Robert Lee coming in saying, uh, he's 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 not right with something not right with him. And they're starting to, and I'm saying to them, no, he's a really good man. Give him a chance. Let, let's just see what happens. And and then and then and then Alan and someone walked in or Robert Lee walked in one day and said, right. Roos just said you can't get a good steak in Newcastle. He's definitely not. He's definitely off. The, you know, he's <laughs> definitely off. The, and that was kind of where Roos was coming in from this kind of. I'm coming from the big, the big smoke, and this is a parochial place. And we, and, and you got like the the most parochial but world famous centre forward at the football club, and, and and it was quite clear he wanted to lock horns with him, and he did. Now that was their business. That was not my business. Somewhere along the way, the year before, I'd done the best work at the football club. I'd been Worked with Alan Daly for eight weeks. That's a centre forward in Newcastle United and England, and for, for eight months, sorry. And I put my heart and soul into rehabbing him, thinking I was doing my best ever work for Newcastle United, and I did do my best ever work for Newcastle United. Anybody that ever seen me play would recognise that that was my best ever work for Newcastle United. Oh, come on, come and, on, and, and, come and, on. And no, stop that, that. That seemed to be turned on its head, and all of a sudden there was kind of whispers that you know anybody who was Alan's friend would be in a bit of trouble. And I, I had a conversation with Rude one day, and he just said, "When I, when when when, when Alan Shearer speaks in the treatment room, you don't answer." You don't speak. And I said, all right. And he said, when Robert Lee speaks, you don't speak. I said, all right, that's fine. No problem. And we, we, we trained the chest this week and I went out one day and the girl who runs the centre said, oh, Paul, just to let you know, in the evenings when you leave, Rude's coming back and he's going in the treatment room. And she said, he's there for like, I thought, well, I don't know what the hell, what's going on there? So myself and Derek, right, got a bit paranoid thinking, well, what the hell is he going back to the treatment room? So, so at one particular moment, I'm going around the skirting boards and you've got Derek right with his head up through the um through the through the, through the um false ceiling to have a little look. And it's and you can never say that he was. And, but I had lots of people at that time. I, I probably if Rude had a stayed and and the the you know the Sunderland game had gone the other way uh, through no fault of my own, I probably would have lost my job, which 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 is one yeah. of the reasons why I ended I think I wrote about in the boy in the shed. There was there was you know, it was one of the reasons why I thought I need to move on and have a different career here, because I'm not, I don't want my Career decided by two two egos banging it. You know, I just thought I don't want that to happen. How would you frame your relationship with football now and your relationship with Newcastle now? Um, it you know, it's it strange. <laughs> it would take it would take it would take you to have um the stuff with Mike Ashley with Alan at the end. You know, I we you know we you know I had to go and sit down with my wife and, and sell it and sell our home. Based on someone, based on based on a, a mistake that I'd made, and actually people just not being, you know, authentic. Even 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 the Michael, I mean, the Michael Owen stuff at the end of that season, I wrote about it in the Boy in the Shed, very honestly. And it wasn't any credit; it was just a simple fact. Our captain came in before the last second last game of the season, sat down with a team full of medical people, and I'm I'm, I'm part of the management team, and he just said, um, I said you you, you got a chance to be available for the weekend, and I'm about to lose my home if we don't stay up. So so and then and then and then he said, well, you know, maybe I won't get it. I'm worried about getting the contract if I don't if I don't if I, if I rip my groin to pieces here. And he's entitled to say that, and he has got an injury. He's entitled. To, but actually, I had the misfortune, and I write about it in this book, in the, in the one you're reading now. I'm going to spoil the next bit for you. To listen to Talk Sport one morning about two years ago, Michael's promoting his book, and he's actually on talking about that that period. I don't recognise anything he's saying. I mean, I really don't recognise what he's saying. He's actually saying Alan Shearer blamed him for his relegation. Well, no, he didn't. He's actually saying, I was never fit when Alan was there. Well, you were. You played seven out of eight games. And then he's actually saying, I think Alan's, one of the physios was Alan's go-to man, as in me. I wasn't a physio. I was the head of the medical department. I was part of the management team. And he said, I think he fell on the line that I didn't want to play in the last game against Aston Villa. No, I didn't. I actually 
told Alan as part of the management team that our captain had just said, I'm worried about getting the contract elsewhere. So my relationship with football is, you might hear the bitterness in my voice. It's just, it's, I, I actually, I actually almost feel like I never really got the proper rub that I wanted to get out of it. And I don't, I don't, and, and I, and I, I kind of felt like the, the club was occupied by, it was like it was under foreign occupation. When Mike, when Mike actually, we had it, I didn't feel like it was a place you could, you could love, especially after having personal experience of it. I had the great pleasure of being to one of the games this season, which was Everton, just as they started to turn the corner. And I got a feeling in my chest that, that you get that feeling of, oh, wow, this is something. You can feel it coming. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's taken me a little longer than some to fall back in love, I think. Mm. So you, you do watch the team now and you're, you're happy now with Mike Ashley gone? Oh, massive. Who, well, who couldn't be? I think he's happy. I think he's happy too. He, oh, he, he, no, I don't think he ever wanted it, did he well, really? He, Let's be honest. He told us that summer, quite frankly, that he just said he didn't want to be there. He said, I understand business, but I don't understand this business. It's oil and water for me. And, and I think... I think that's that, that. I think he wanted to get out since then. Yeah, it it seems to be the case, definitely. And I mean, it's you know the boy in the, the boy in the shed. It's sort of that you you know not not being able to make it because of because of injury. And you you were sort of talking there about you know about that sort of strange relationship with football. I do want to say though that what you've what you've done what you've done as a writer. I and mean, I can't you know I know you've got huge huge. Um, other other stuff going on in your life, which is massive, like speed flex and stuff like that. But you're a genius at what you do, Paul, and I hope you, I hope you, I hope you know that. And um, you. you know, I hope you know, I hope you know that um, it's appreciated. And I know it won awards, so you, you know, presumably do. But you know, we're very, pr- we're very proud of you. And um, yeah, congratulations on the book. And it's um, where where can people get hold of it? I mean, apart from obviously Amazon and stuff like that. What's... Obviously, it's obviously Magic the Tin is out on Amazon now, and you get it. And it's in it's in obviously in Audible and Kindle and the book, and then it's it's very prominently in Waterstones around Newcastle as well. So I'm I'm, I'm very glad to say when I walk in, I can see it on the table, which is always a good sign when it's on the table because and, and there's got a little bit of blurb around there. So any any Waterstones and, and and Amazon, you can get it. But I'm I can't let it pass, and it's not the Mutual Admiration Society and the guys who listen to this podcast. George will, will read will read your writing. So to have someone like yourself publicly say that to me is 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 pretty special for me. So thank thank you for that. So I've had oh, Alan no, Alan Shearer compliment me for the first time in my life on here today, which is incredible. And, then, <laughs> and then, <laughs> that's not true. That's not true. And then I have and then I have maybe one of the most respected writers in the northeast and if not the country. Dude, that's amazing. Thank you. Oh, look at that, Paul. I've been doing this podcast for three years with George, and he's never once given me a compliment like that. Me or Chris. So you know, you should think yourself you've very. Ne- you've never done anything to deserve one. Kayla, <laughs> what you need for the compliments to flow. There's a little bit of a heart attack, a bit of heart disease, a bit of coughing. <laughs> the compliments fly out. <laughs> oh, absolutely, Paul. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been it's been great to talk to you. Uh, and the, the book, congratulations and and good luck with everything that comes with that and yourself as well. Thank you. Thank you so much for giving us your time. It's been it's been great to chat to you. Uh, and we shall hopefully speak to you again in the future. You never know when, when the next book comes out. Maybe I hope so. Thank you both. Fantastic stuff, Paul Ferris. Cheers, Paul. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill.
FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Just enough time to round up some of the other NUFC-related news before we bid you farewell. Uh, and as the season draws to a close, it's only natural that focus turns to the ownership's first summer break. Chris, financial fair play, it's going to prevent Newcastle from retreading City's route to success. And they have to be very canny this summer, don't they, with the money that they spend and how they go about the uh, the rebuild Yes, this point's been made a few times, and I think there's still some Newcastle fans out there who think it's just a ploy, a sort of negotiating position from Newcastle that this summer they're not going to go and spend £200 million and they're going to go and bring in all these players. But the message from several very senior people at Newcastle United is that although they do want to spend money and they do intend to strengthen the squad, it will still be organic growth and that there isn't an absolutely massive budget for this summer. It is something which has to be sustainable. They spent more in January than they intended to initially. They have made losses in the last couple of years, primarily because of of, uh, of, of COVID and the like, but equally there, there are financial fair play concerns. And it's not so much that Newcastle are anywhere close to breaching financial fair play, but they always want to, to have enough room within it so that if they do have to spend, they can continuously do so over future windows. So they want to spend this summer, they want to spend in January, they want to keep strengthening each window to make sure the team keeps getting better and progressing. So... Yes, George and I, with help with Kieran Maguire, the, the football uh, finance lecturer and who hosts the Very Good Price of Football podcast, looked into the situation at Newcastle. What is exactly the situation with FFP as much as we can without having the exact figures? Because even when you get accounts which aren't out for, for last season, you don't get the exact FFP figures because they're slightly different. But basically looked at it and, and showed how, yes, they can't replicate the Man City model. When Man City were taken over, there was no FFP. That was introduced in 2013. Yeah. And in those five years, Man City had lost more than half a billion pounds. Newcastle can't do that because they, they can spend as much as they want in infrastructure, academy, women's team, Team, all of that doesn't count towards FFP expenditure. But when it comes to wages, when it comes to, to transfer fees, until they bring in greater amount of revenue, which the biggest room for growth is commercial deals, which George will explain partly why they aren't in the they haven't arrived yet. Once that happens, that is when Newcastle can really hope to spend a bit more in terms of the transfer market and, and, and not have FFP concerns. So in terms of commercial and marketing, the thing that people at the top of the club point out is that you know they took over mid-season. So they were expecting, if that's the right word, to take over in January. That, so they came in very quickly. They had to do an audit of what they have. The phrases they use don't sound familiar to me because it's not my kind of language, but they talk about having a commercial and, and sponsorship model that they can sell to people. So the idea that they could immediately press the button on, on big companies coming in, that was never there, that was never part of it. It was never part of it to have big Saudi companies calling to them, which of course is now not allowed in terms of uh, huge money. And they had to sell their story. So when they came in, they're bottom of the league and they're shit at football. And so they have to present, they have to show that they're not going to be shit at football and that there's something for commercial partners and sponsors to get interested in. Now, I think they've probably done that quite compellingly, but they have to present their story to people. They also have to build up their own team inside St. James's. So we have to remember again that it's been a bit of a merry Celeste for a long time, not been a lot of people. And the other thing is, I'm not saying Sports Direct has been their only company, but it's been the major part of the club's own commercial and sponsorship arrangements. And the phrase that was used by someone at the top of the club is that, you know, we can't have a corner shop mentality. 
you know, this is a massive institution and it has to behave like that, but that's going to take time. And so the commercial deals, commercial conversations that they're having at the moment will come to fruition in a few months' time, maybe a year away. And they also have existing arrangements. So these things, it just takes longer than we think because I think, you know, on the face of it, you think, okay, well, why haven't they got, you know, why haven't they got a tractor sponsor? Probably shouldn't mention tractors in this day and age because people think I'm talking about pornography. But... um. <laughs> They should have a porno- pornography sponsor. Um, they should have an attractor sponsor. They should have a duvet sponsor. Why haven't they got a... You know, there's all that. It's like, why haven't they got all those things? They just take a long time to sort out, is the answer. Absolutely. And while we can't copy and paste the city model, Chris, they are a useful target, aren't they? And at the very least, when it comes to things like the academy and bringing through players, and you've written about Newcastle's sort of search for finding their own Phil Foden, uh, there's plenty of talent out there, we're always told as well. So where, where do the where do the, the clubs stand on the, the academy and going forward that way? Well, the plan is that, that like for every element of the club they want to invest in it and to improve it and to make Newcastle be able to produce players like Man City have done with Phil Ford and they haven't just produced someone who's come in the first team and, and will then go into the lower leagues or a lower Premier League club Phil Ford is a world class player now and that's what Newcastle want to do to do they want to keep improving they've got Steve Harper there they, as, as academy manager he's done very well he's still looking to sort of revamp the academies rebuilding it as they go but they need greater resources and we've already seen this week the plans that Newcastle have for the short term to improve the training ground which uh, was always the, the quote unquote fit for purpose but now they have the new owners have submitted plans with which within it basically say that they not only are the training ground current training ground isn't really up to Premier League standards it doesn't even match some championship clubs standards that is what they are saying about the current training ground so they are there's a significant investment going into that in the short term to make sure they can maximize the resources they have at their disposal for now before longer term they want to build an, a, an academy similar to the one that Man City have where they have a campus with everything in one place the academy the women's team the first team everyone trains together all departments are together whether Newcastle can find a site for that is another question but they're searching in the longer term and the plan is to still want that and once if and when they can implement that then it'll be further down the line the Phil the Newcastle's future Phil Foden may be eight or nine years old at the minute and maybe join the academy in a few years time but that is what they have to aspire to to try and bring players through like that if they can Absolutely. Um, and I also mentioned a week or two ago, Chris has been at the unveiling of the uh, George Robledo plaque in Fenham. Chris, do you want to tell us a bit about that? Well, it's actually to the Robledo brothers, so yes. both George and Ted. Uh, and I wrote an article uh, nearly three years ago now about the pair of them and how they these Chilean brothers were at Newcastle in the 1940s and 50s and lifted two FA Cups with them. And this astonishing tale, really, and George Robledo in particular was a wonderful uh, footballer, the first South Americans to, to play uh, in, in English football, and then George went back and, and also played for, for Chile. And it, it's, it's just a wonderful tale, but uh, a guy called Chris Brook a few years ago um, who was actually a Sheffield United fan but was doing research in, in South Yorkshire and found out about them and their roots in Barnsley and then also found out about Newcastle so he has managed to commission a blue plaque to be unveiled on the house that they lived in in Fenham and I spoke to Elizabeth Robledo the, the daughter of uh, George who came across for the unveiling uh, last week Newcastle made my father famous <laughs> and that's the way Colo Colo took him to Chile and 
I was born thanks to Newcastle and Colo Colo, so no, it's very important. Sorry my Latin American humor, but I'm very proud and I'm very thankful to Newcastle United for giving my, my father the opportunity to play and giving them the, the chance with my uncle to, to be part of the you know the the, 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 the main team and for bringing all the family to Newcastle. I can tell you that that never, ever forgot Newcastle. He's always, always talking about Newcastle. I have heaps and heaps of photos of Newcastle and they are all at home and I treasure that. And I'm the only child and I don't have any children. So with the help of two persons in Chile, we are treasuring every single image or document so we can still uh, have Newcastle United very present in, in Chile too. And my black and white heart uh, is going to stay like that. I love Newcastle and what else can I say you? I'm so proud, so proud being here. It's 65 years more than that since your father and your uncle left the club and yet they're, they're still remembered by so many people in Newcastle. Yeah. That must be special for you as well. Extremely special, yes. And I try to say hello to everybody and to even have a very quick chat, but everyone said something nice about my father and that is extremely special. You know, when they, they, they say how nice he was and in Bansley and here today, I met fans that kept exchanging letters with my father, even when my dad had left, you know, from Colo Colo. He was still writing to his fans. So that's how he was. And I grew up looking at my dad. Sometimes he had a lot of letters and he answered to every one of them. I'm so proud. I couldn't have had a better dad. Jackie Milburn obviously was very close to your father. Yes. Can you just talk a little bit about their relationship as well? Oh, well, they were very good uh, friends and teammates, of course. And they always kept in touch. And when Dad was invited for the 30-year cup anniversary back in 81, they were together for the last time. So uh, I'm so happy they had the chance to see each other before they, they passed away. It was just wonderful to, to, to speak to her, wonderful to hear that relationship that, that, that she still has for the club, the love she still has for the club, and also that affection that, that George and Ted had with, with Jackie Milburn, obviously club legend, one of the greatest club legends at Newcastle. But George and Ted, special place in Newcastle United history, probably the greatest brothers who've ever played for the club. So yeah, a wonderful thing uh, to unveil the plaque to them. Absolutely brilliant, yes. Uh, and before we finish, uh, we have to extend congratulations to Joey Barton uh, and Elliot Anderson, who pulled off a remarkable 7-0 victory over Scunthorpe, the exact score required by Bristol Rovers to clinch promotion uh, to League One. Elliot, or Billy, as the uh, the Gas fans have taken to call him, got the seventh goal, having assisted two uh, of the other six amid incredible scenes at the Memorial Stadium. Did you see this as it happened live, uh, either of you? Absolutely ridiculous football, bloody hell.
Amazing stuff. Uh, and we also have to mention uh, Mansfield getting into the playoffs with young Matty Longstaff. And Kel Watts has been promoted with Wigan as well. All round good news for Newcastle Lawnees. There we go. Uh, right then, chaps. I think it's just about time that we finish this off, eh? Uh, so thank you very much for your time. And don't forget, you can subscribe to The Athletic with your first six months at just £1 a month right now at theathletic.com forward slash Newcastle pod. Thanks to George uh, and thanks to Chris for their time. Cheers, chaps. Thank you. Mini Woff. <sighs> George Foreman, Mini Woff. Woff, come on. Thanks very much for listening out there. It's been great to talk to you. We shall speak to you again very, very soon. From everyone at Pod on the Time, goodbye. Athletic.